From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Why are there more mass shootings in America compared to so many other countries? To Americans, guns are really different. They have a protective meaning. The average gun owner in the United States owns a handgun. And so we have a different gun culture than lots of other places. We'll talk with a researcher who says, like smoking, Americans need to reframe the role guns play in our society. Then one woman's harrowing effort to rescue her family's beloved horses from the fast-moving Marshall Fire. They're standing at the closest point to our home, and I realized that they were waiting for us to come and save them, or they were prepared to leave the world with each other. And a first responder on how a trusted adage helps save lives as the flames spread. I'm Sam Brash, a CPR climate and environment reporter. Covering stories like the Marshall Fire is how I met a family rebuilding with earthen blocks, something they say is perfect for a warmer, more flammable world. You can shape it, you can change it, you can build it into something, and you can form it into something, and it it doesn't burn. Climate change, it's scary, but sometimes the solutions are right under our feet. Invest in climate solutions coverage at CPR.org slash climate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Our first guest attended East High School in Denver, where a shooting injured two administrators last month. And earlier this year, a student was fatally shot outside the school. Tristan Bridges is now an associate professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's an expert in the role that gender plays in violence, and he studies shootings, in particular mass shootings, and the social science around guns in the U.S. Professor, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. This month marks 24 years since the Columbine shooting. That was in 1999. You graduated from East that same year. What were your thoughts when you heard about the recent shooting at East and the shooting death earlier this year of an East student? Um, It's just so devastating when you hear about these happening anywhere in the United States. And I think it's always particularly difficult when they hit near home for any of us. Um, And so... It made me think about teachers who are still at the school that were teaching there when I was there. Um, one of my siblings is a is a teacher in the Colorado public education system, and um, it made me really feel terribly for the students and parents and families. We should say that neither of these shootings at East are considered mass shootings, but you've done a lot of research for a book that focuses specifically on mass shootings, and you talk a lot about how there are multiple definitions of what a mass shooting actually is. How do you define them, and how does that differ from other organizations that track them? Yeah, there's a couple different ways you can count these things. And it comes down to the basic question of sort of what qualifies a shooting as mass. Most scholarship on this topic has taken a really narrow definition and said not only do a certain number of people need to be injured, but they also need to have been killed. The majority of scholarship that we have suggests that for a shooting to qualify as a mass shooting, it needs to be a single shooter who... Um, commits a crime in a single location, four or more people other than the shooter need to have been killed, 
and the crime can't be associated with either gang, drug, family, or intimate partner violence. So that's the normal definition of mass shootings that's used in most research. We have kind of broadened that definition a bit, and we've been using a variety of different data sets to try to put together a larger collection of incidents that just asks that at least four or more people need to be injured. We don't ask what the context of the crime was, so it's a, we include gang, drug, family, and intimate partner violence. We also include incidents with either one or two shooters. And what that's allowed us to do is to just look at a much larger population of mass shooting incidents than most research. And in your view, how do the many different definitions affect the American public's perception of mass shootings? I, I think most Americans are probably not aware that there are these sort of competing and sometimes conflicting definitions. And so some of the ways that they can affect Americans' perceptions of mass shootings is that different definitions can be used to support different conclusions. If you want to say that there aren't very many mass shootings in the United States, there's a definition that allows you to say that. If you'd like to say that there are more mass shootings in the United States, you could use a different definition. And because of that, I think that there's lots of different claims being made about how many mass shootings there are and what type of a problem this is. And I guess what you're saying is that this is really a larger, broader problem than we might see from the other definitions. If you use the definition that we're using, there's more of them. There's more incidents. It also allows us to look for patterns that patterns are just easier to see in data when you have more data. Any definition that you use of mass shootings, there are more of them in the United States than anywhere else on Earth. But just how many more can differ wildly by different definitions and databases. And the nice thing about having a really large database is that it allows us to ask a question. Do those mass shootings that are in databases that have really narrow definitions, do they actually meaningfully differ from all of the shootings that have been excluded from analysis. And if they do, that's interesting. Um, and we can ask why that is and in what ways those incidents are different. But if they don't, then maybe we should be looking at a larger sample too. You've been compiling data of mass shootings over the past 10 years. How have the number of these shootings changed over the years, both using other definitions and your own? Basically, for every definition of mass shootings, most databases show that there have been a steady increase in the frequency of mass shootings, so there have been more of them in recent history. But just how many more differs by database. In the database that we are compiling at the beginning of it, which our database starts in 2013, we find that there are about one mass shooting a day in the United States. And we take the data all the way through 2022. And by 2022, there are close to two mass shootings a day in the United States. So doubling over the course of a decade. Just to go back to the East High School violence this year, 
There's been this renewed debate about school resource officers or SROs in the wake of these shootings. These are um, police officers who work in schools. A few years ago, Denver Public Schools decided to stop having SROs in its schools. The thinking was that SROs were unfairly targeting students of color and contributing to the schools-to-prison pipeline. Is there any research that links the presence of SROs to less violence in schools? So school shootings are sort of a particular type of shooting. And I don't want to comment on that specifically because I don't know the research on SROs specifically, but I can comment on how it relates to the presence or absence of school shootings. Um, You know, although there are more school shootings in the United States than any other nation in the world, it's also true that it doesn't happen that often. And when I say school shootings, I'm, I'm talking about mass shootings. So actually both incidents that happened recently at East and outside East don't qualify. Right. But in that small collection, we can ask the question, you know, what does the presence of armed officers on campus actually do? Are school shootings less likely at schools where that have officers like this? And the best research that we have right now shows that no, they're not less likely. Um, school shootings happen on campuses where um, officers have firearms on campus as well. Um, but the difference is that the on school campuses where there are armed officers, the school shootings that have happened there have tended to involve more injuries. And it's a small enough population of incidents that it's hard to say why that is. But one interpretation of that data that scholars have made in the past is that it could be the case that um, when there are armed officers at school, it doesn't make kids decide not to commit a school shooting. But when they do commit school shootings, they come to school more heavily armed. And so it may be that that it in fact it accomplishes exactly the opposite of what it's what it's intending to accomplish. Does studying mass shootings offer any insight into those who might be potential mass shooters? Any characteristics that law enforcement or families, friends should be looking for? This is probably the most commonly asked question that we get by the media. And, you know, the truth is, I'm actually really skeptical of any scholar who studies mass shootings who offers this kind of prescription of a recipe of what makes a mass shooter. Because in truth, if we look at whatever those risk factors are, lots and lots and lots of Americans suffer from them. We know that these things happen more commonly here than they do anywhere else. But to ask who specifically might be at risk of actually committing one is just much more difficult than you might think. And so I think it's kind of a fool's errand to try to sort of target individuals. And um, my colleague, Dr. Tarly Tober, and I are studying these together. One of the ways that we sort of made sense of that is to say, I think it's common to want to make sense of these issues psychologically to kind of look for the individuals and say, who was this strange person who did this crime who's so much different than the rest of us who would never do this? And how sociologists look at problems like this is we ask, what kinds of social contexts make it more likely that someone is going to do one of these things? And sociology is a field that sort of better helps us to answer that latter question. And so we're much more interested in the characteristics of the context in which they occur than the specific qualities or temperaments of the individuals who commit them. 
have you found in your research a relationship between folks with mental health issues and these mass shootings? Um, we haven't, but the reason why is sort of interesting. I think the mental health framing, sort of anyone who commits a mass shooting is clearly mentally disturbed. But whether they have a diagnosable mental health disorder is a different question. And, you know, the best data that we have on this come from public news accounts of mass shootings after they happen. And so we can't actually diagnose individuals from those accounts, but we can look at how often mental health comes up as an explanation for what happened and what type of evidence is offered when it comes up in news media accounts. And we show that it doesn't come up as often as I think the public might think. And that supports a lot of what we know about the relationship between violence and mental health in the United States and elsewhere in the world. The mentally ill are no more likely to commit violence than the rest of the population, but they are much more likely to have violence committed against them. So we don't really have strong evidence to suggest that mental health is a meaningful way of explaining this. You've also studied the relationship between gender and violence and mass shootings. We know that most incidents involve male shooters. Has your research led you to any understanding of why this seems to be uniquely a male thing and really violence in general perpetrated by males? Yeah, I think one sort of gut reaction to that is to say something like, well, boys and men are just naturally more violent than girls and women. But we don't have a lot of evidence to suggest that that's necessarily the case. This particular type of violence, too, is pretty unique to the United States. And so if it were really some inherent difference between men and women, we would expect to see similar types of violence in societies all around the world that have access to firearms, but we don't. And so my colleague, Dr. Tarly Tober, and I have sort of one way that we've made sense of that is to talk about mass shootings as crimes that in part accomplish gender as well. And when I say that, I mean, although we're not criminologists, the way criminologists sometimes talk about large gender discrepancies in crimes is to suggest that sometimes criminal activity accomplishes gender at the same time. And so when scholars look at things like this who study gender like we do, they ask, what else is the crime accomplishing other than sort of what we might be expecting, like injuring people. One of the things that it accomplishes is it sort of helps them to do gender in a specific way. What do you mean by that? So one of the ways that we've studied masculinity specifically is in the in social psychological experiments. We bring people into labs and we try to experimentally take masculinity away from them. This body of research is called masculinity threat research. Um, and basically what we're interested in doing when scholars study masculinity this way is they sort of experimentally threaten men's sense of themselves as masculine, and then they look at what they turn to in response. There's just an enormous body of research on this. Research has shown that if you threaten men's sense of themselves as masculine, they'll tell you they're more likely to buy an SUV than other types of cars. They're more likely to support male supremacist statements like, I believe men are inherently superior to women. There's been a lot of research done on sort of what does it do to their understandings of gender and sexual violence. We know that if we threaten men's masculinity, they're more likely to support violence as a reasonable response to resolving a conflict. 
And that tells us some of what men might understand as masculine. When the chips are down, what do you turn to? And given what you say is the disparity between men who commit these kinds of violent crimes in the U.S. versus other places, are you saying this view of masculinity is a uniquely American thing? Well, something's going on. I mean, masculinity threat is uh, is conducted in different nations than, than the United States alone. And so it's not only a social psychological phenomenon. Um, it's true that men respond in similar ways to masculinity threat research in other nations as well. So that's not the only way that we can explain this. It also has to do with guns and American gun culture and the relationship between those things and masculinity here in the United States. And that's something that is a, is a part of a larger project. It's a difficult thing to measure, but clearly we have a different gun culture than lots of other places. And part of what's going on is that the gun culture that we have here is encouraging types of incidents that don't occur other places and near the frequency they do here. Can you give me an example in some way of that, um, you know, what you see in other countries in terms of gun culture versus in the U.S.? Yeah. When Scott, when social scientists talk about the term gun culture, they're trying to measure what guns mean to people in a society. Most people who've studied American gun culture will talk about the uniqueness of American gun culture, but but sort of measuring what guns mean to people can be sort of challenging. One of the sort of shorthand ways that it's explained is by the sociologist Jennifer Carlson, who um, who, will, who t discusses the ways that sort of, for instance, Canada and the United States differ in their gun cultures. And one of the easy ways of looking at that is that um, although C Canadians have less guns per capita in their nation than we do in the United States, there's also some other differences the average gun owner in Canada owns a long gun. They own like a rifle. And if you ask them what it's used for, they'll describe it being used for hunting, target shooting, things like that. If you discuss the meanings of that gun with Canadians, they're more likely to discuss it in a similar way to the ways they might discuss like a hammer or some other tool. Um, it's something to be careful around, etc. To Americans, guns are really different. They have a protective meaning. Um, we have a lot more guns per capita in the United States than they do in Canada. But we also, the average gun owner in the United States owns a handgun. And that has a really different meaning. And so this is just one of the ways that the gun culture, the meanings attached to guns might be different in just in those two nations, for instance. Does any of this research help inform how to prevent these mass shootings? what some policy ideas might be. You know, I think that when it comes to something like mass shootings, a piece of the pro a really important part of the problem is just the number of guns in this country. I mean, we're, we're the only nation in the world that has more guns than people. No one else is even close. So the, we're, we're the most gun owningest nation in the world, but we're in first place by so much that if second place is laughable compared with us. But another part of the problem has to do with the meaning of guns. And to resolve an issue like this, we don't only have to have gun legislation that will allow fewer of the most dangerous types of weapons into this nation. But we also, we also need to think about what it would take to shift the meaning of guns in American society and what that would look like. Folks who 
believe strongly in the Second Amendment are going to say that they have a right written into the Constitution that they should be able to own a gun. Sure. What we're interested in, though, is sort of asking um, beyond that, why do they? Great. So you have a right, but why do you choose to own guns and why do, why do Americans choose to own so many of them? And that's a cultural issue that has to do with the meanings attached to guns. One way of thinking about this is, you know, for a long time, we believed that smoking was was good for people. Doctors prescribed cigarettes to patients and told them this is a helpful way of relaxing. And then we found out that this was actually not good for public health. And we had to do more than just tell people like, oh, it turns out smoking isn't helping you. It's killing you. We had to change the meaning of smoking in our culture. And that's really hard. You know, when I was a kid, cool people in the movie, the protagonists who you were sort of felt like you were on the side of were the ones depicted smoking. Now it's the bad people in the movie, um, the people who are supposed to be sort of voting against who are more likely to be depicted smoking. I think this is like a small way that the sort of meanings attached to cigarettes and smoking have gradually changed over time, hopefully in ways that are better for Americans' health. Well, we need to do something similar with firearms. And yet that's going to concern a lot of folks who own guns and believe strongly in the Second Amendment and their right to own them. Although one way of looking at it from the data that we have is, uh, you know, we have data on so many mass shootings over the decade that we've studied them that we can ask questions that are harder to ask with other data. So um, we're really interested in where mass shootings are in our data set. And when I say that, I mean specifically, like what cities and states are they happening in and why there? But it also means that we can look at where aren't mass shootings? Where are they not happening? And it turns out some of the places that mass shootings aren't are some of the states that have some of the highest rates of gun ownership. So places like Idaho and Wyoming and Alaska have really, really low rates of mass shootings. Um, and it could be the case that guns just mean something different in those places, that guns might have a more similar meaning to the meaning that guns have to Canadians than they do to the ways that guns have meaning in California or Illinois, for instance. Colorado lawmakers are moving forward with several bills they say will decrease gun violence. Um, do states with stricter gun laws have fewer shootings and mass shootings? In general, yes. And the caveat that I have there is that, you know, the difficult about um, state legislation and firearms is that it's year to year. And so what do you do with all of the guns that are there before new legislation comes out? And I know there's a variety of ways that states try to handle things like this, but that's a piece of the issue. And then another piece of the issue is, you know, state boundaries are porous. And so guns can come from other states that enact violence in states that have legislation trying to protect um, people who live in those states from that type of gun violence. It's a difficult thing to handle at the state level. Tristan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me.
Tristan Bridges is vice chair and associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's also collaborating with a colleague on a book on mass shootings in America. Bridges was attending East High School in Denver in 1999 when the Columbine shootings happened. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years, a big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Spring weather can be inconsistent. Shorts one day, a jacket the next. But there is a consistent phenomenon here pretty much year-round. We got a question about wind through Colorado Wonders. This is Marlene Sassaman in the Navajo Ranch district of Walsenburg. My question is, what causes the consistent high winds in the southern front range, south of Pueblo and west of Walsenburg in the Navajo Ranch area. It's right along Highway 160, west of Walsenburg. Thank you. Finding the answer was a breeze for my colleague Ryan Warner. I merely had to reach a stalwart of Colorado weather, Mike Nelson, chief meteorologist at Denver 7. The answer to that question about the strong winds is very similar to what causes the strong winds up in Boulder County and along Highway 93. The mountains are right there, and the air can't go through them. It's got to go around them and through the canyons. And so it is much like when you walk downtown in Denver and the wind is blowing and you get between a couple of tall buildings. It's called the Venturi effect. You're squeezing all that air in between those tall buildings and it gets very windy. We're squeezing all that air in between the mountain peaks and through the canyons. Same thing happens down in the Walsenburg area as it does up toward Boulder County. The reason that the National Wind Technology Lab is up there along Highway 93 is not because they necessarily have the most wind all the time, but they get extreme winds coming through there and they can stress test those big wind turbines for really strong winds. According to one article, an example that almost everybody has experienced is when they place their thumb at the end of the garden hose to create that stronger stream. So that's happening with wind. Yep. Would you say Colorado is windier than many other states because of the effects you're talking about? Absolutely. Colorado is a very windy state because we're uh, in the high plains. We have the mountains that squeeze the winds around quite a bit. But just central of the continent, the air masses that come down from Canada versus the air masses that come up from the south, we get a lot of weather fronts that go through that drive our winds. It's why when people say, you know, the wind doesn't always blow. Well, honestly, if you've been out in the eastern plains of Colorado, it tends to blow most of the time. I also think of some of the more specific kinds of wind. I learned just several years ago about derechos. Can you speak to the different kinds of wind? Well, a derecho, which is Spanish for straight ahead, is a strong straight line wind. So that's just blasting out of the bottom of a thunderstorm, hitting the ground and going out straight in front of that thunderstorm. Sometimes we call it a gust front, if you will. 
But a derecho, a downburst, a microburst, all kind of the same thing, except the derecho tends to be on a larger scale where it may uh, plow through an area and leave a lot of damage. There were a couple of them in the Midwest a summer or two before last that would leave, you know, for 70 or 80 miles, just this big, long line of trees down. Two other things, a bora wind is a strong downsloping wind, but it's cold air that comes down behind a cold front. And a Chinook is a downsloping wind coming down the mountains that tends to be a warmer wind because when air travels downhill, it warms up about five and a half degrees Fahrenheit for every thousand feet of descent. Because we are wondering here, I just have to ask, what's the strongest wind ever recorded in Colorado and where? The record, which stood for a long, long time, was at NCAR, one of all great places to measure wind at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And on January 25th, 1971, there was a gust of 147 miles per hour, which for a long time held as the state record recently beat out, according to the Colorado Climate Center, by a gust up on Monarch Pass that reached 148 miles per hour. Would that be considered hurricane force? I mean, I, I realize those aren't hurricanes, but how do we describe those speeds? Yeah, that would be considered category four hurricane, actually. But the difference, a hurricane, of course, will have winds like that that are constant for hours and hours. We get a gust that might be for just a few minutes or seconds. Thank you so much for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson speaking with Ryan Warner to answer a Colorado Wonders question. What do you wonder about? Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. The Marshall Fire is the most destructive wildfire in state history. What started as a grass fire in Boulder County quickly spread into nearby Superior and Louisville. In CPR's podcast, My Story So Far, people affected by the tragedy reflect on their emotional journeys in the aftermath of a wildfire. Here is host Luis Antonio Perez. As you drive through here, you may not even know that a fire had happened here. You'd assume that this was just open land. A year after the most destructive wildfire in Colorado's history, I drove through the Sagamore neighborhood in the town of Superior. This subdivision was leveled by the wildfire that tore through Superior, Louisville, and other parts of Boulder County in December 2021. Wildfires are common in Colorado, but the Marshall Fire was the worst this state has seen. It destroyed more than 1,000 buildings. Most of those were people's homes. These communities have been slowly rebuilding. But as I drove through the neighborhood, surrounded by a hum of construction noise, it was obvious that even after a year, there was still a long way to go. To the left, there's like spray painted in the snow, the outline of, I think, where a home would be. At this point, a year later, it's just crazy that people are like, some people are rebuilt, some people are rebuilding, some people are it's just an empty lot. There's been a lot of news coverage about the Marshall Fire. We heard about the extent of the damage, the challenges of rebuilding, but there are so many personal stories that most of us haven't heard about what people in these communities saw 
and experience that day and how they're feeling now. On an evening in January, a little over a year after the fire, we gathered with this community at the Louisville Underground, a small venue underneath a restaurant in downtown Louisville. It has a speakeasy vibe because you have to walk through an arcade to find it. Most of the room was filled with storytellers, their friends, family members, neighbors, and other people from the community who'd come to listen. I was grateful to everyone there and eager to let them take the mic. I think it's important to acknowledge that almost every single person in this room has been directly impacted by the Marshall Fire. When we were looking for people who would be interested in sharing their stories, I heard about Megan Rickle, a local rodeo queen who had done some pretty impressive things that day. My name is Megan, and uh, this is an incredible story of the right time, the right place, and the right incredibly heroic and generous group of strangers. My dad built his dream house at the top of Spanish Hills on Davidson Mesa. And he built for my mom and my sister and I our dream barn for our two beloved horses. I uh, half joke with my husband that my horse Caesar is the first love of my life. (laughs) And uh, that still stays pretty true. (laughs) Uh, I remember when I first met Caesar. He was two years old and he was 21 at the time of the fire last year. I remember where I was that day because we were supposed to be getting more hay for them because while my parents had moved from that house into a smaller home, the horses stayed in their dream home. I was actually at one of our restaurants. Uh, My husband and I are small business owners and that's when I got the call from my mom. She said, there's a big fire. The horses are in trouble, please help. And then she hung up. That's the briefest phone call I've ever had with my mother, (laughs) which should have been the first indicator. (laughs) As I was driving from Denver, I didn't think much of it. I was staying pretty calm. And then when I turned the curve on US 36, usually that beautiful backdrop that we all call home, those lovely mountains, they were hidden behind an opaque wall of black smoke. And I was the only one crazy enough that was driving into the fire. (laughs) I got into our neighborhood right before emergency vehicles had come and closed it off. And when I navigated my way around the maze of roads, I came around the corner and I saw my parents were there and they had the trailer attached because we were going to get hay that day. I kept going up the hill. I got about halfway up, and then I realized that there were flames on all three sides of me, and the only way out was back behind me. Feeling defeated, I turned around and parked. My dad said, I don't know what we're waiting for, but we're here to wait. I'm not going to leave them. We waited, and we waited as the flames grew closer and the ash rained harder on the cars. And we're still waiting, and this white trailer comes cutting through the gray smoke. And it has a big sheriff's badge on it. And they stopped and spoke to my parents and they said, we're with the Mounted Search and Rescue team. They were there to save horses. And my mom, ever the cheerleader goes, my daughter Megan 
is an incredible equestrian and she's in the car in front of us. <laughs> Would you like some help? <laughs> and they said, yes, <laughs> please. So I hopped out of the truck and hopped in the cab with these incredibly kind, heroic volunteers. We were on our way to the first two horses that had been spotted in the neighborhood. In the back of my mind, every time we came across any of them, I'm really hoping ours are among them. We get to the first two. Nicole and I get out, we get them, we get them loaded, and then we take them back to where we left my parents. Loaded them up, went away to the next six horses this time. They're scattered everywhere. Fire and the wind was wicked. And as the fire was spreading from house to house, to garage, to patio, the pops and explosions are further complicating the chaotic environment that the horses are dealing with. And when we finally get them all gathered, we go back to our safety point. Now we're feeling pretty confident. We're a pretty good little team, the three of us. So once we get them in, Bruce, he turns to me and he says, all right, Megan, it's time for your two now. So we're feeling some confidence as a team, but that would wear off pretty quickly. <laughs> so when we came around the bend, it was a curve in the road that I had so mindlessly taken thousands of times before. I mean, I memorized that land and the landscape in front of me was unrecognizable. These homes, the dreams that built them, the memories that were housed within them, they had all been reduced to crumpled steel and ash. And it was heartbreaking. When we were getting ready to head up, the firefighter knocked on our window and he said, you know exactly where these horses are, you know exactly where they are. And Bruce said, yes, sir, we do. And then he says, well, I'm going to send couple of sheriff's deputies up behind you. And also, you need to understand that you're proceeding at your own caution. There's one way in and one way out. And if you can't get to us, we can't promise we can get to you. <laughs> so we said, yes, we understand. And as the window cracked shut, I breathed the next fear into existence. And I said, well, what if they're not there? We've been asking every single firefighter possible to go and open gates for them. And Bruce looked at me in the rearview mirror and he said, well, that's just a risk we're going to have to take. <laughs> so we started that ascent. And as we went up in the structures, the homes were burning. The heat from the flames was so strong that it was as if the steel and the glass between me and that fire weren't even there. It was a very surreal experience. And as we were, came to the top of the hill, I realized none of my neighbor's houses were there anymore. And I wasn't really sure if anything would be up there at all. So when we got to the end of the cul-de-sac, that drive felt a lot longer this time than it ever had before. I noticed that our neighbor's house was in flames, but our beloved barn was engulfed in flames. As soon as the axles on that truck stopped, I was out and running. Now the thing is, because we backed up to open space, we always let our horses roam around. They weren't locked in the barn, thankfully. Otherwise, this would be a different story. So I was really hoping I'd know where they were. And so as I ran to the back and I approached the arena, 
<laughs> I look to the left and through the smoke, there's this big black figure and there they are, shoulder to shoulder and hip to hip. They're standing at the closest point to our home, to our kitchen windows. And I realized that they were waiting for us to come and save them or they were prepared to leave the world with each other. And I shouted, Caesar! And he craned his beautiful long neck back between the two of them. His white star that usually sits right between his eyes was all black. They had been sitting in ash and smoke for so long. And I yelled, they're here, they're here. And Nicole and I are getting the gate open and our two brave sheriff's deputies that were behind us running down the, the driveway. And one of them shouts, hey guys, those flames are gonna be on that house in no time. And I, I was like, that's all we need, just 30 seconds a minute. They're right here. So we got them. And the relief was incredible, but there was no time for relief at the moment. So then when we're running them back down the narrow driveway that separates the barn from the house, the wind starts to pick up again and shift. And I can feel that flame again, this time in my nostrils and in my whole being. <laughs> when we get to the end of the driveway where the trailer is, there was so much structure that was actively burning that we were putting out little fires inside the, the trailer as well as trying to load horses. But we got them in and we used the wind to our advantage, swung those doors shut. And as we were taking off, I took one, what I thought would be surely the last look at my parents' house standing there. And when we got to the bottom of that hill and we got to that church parking lot back and safe, my mom almost knocked the wind out of me with her hug. <laughs> she had tears streaming down her face. She said, Megan, I thought I sent you to die. And I hugged my dad and I said, Dad, I'm so sorry, but I don't think your dream house is there anymore. And he, he said, oh, Megan, you brought out everything that counts. Now, it's really hard to find a silver lining in something so tragic and devastating like the Marshall Fire, especially with the timing of it, riding on the tail end of the pandemic, during which so much distance had been placed physically and emotionally between us and our families and our neighbors and our communities. And over this past year of rebuilding and finding a new normal and this incredible experience where these strangers and these brave servicemen and women came together amid a time of chaos and heartbreak, it's really restored and renewed that sense of community. Thank you very much for listening. After we heard Megan's story, I had to point out where the tissues were in the room for all of us. We were amazed by what she was able to do that day. When we started organizing this Marshall Fire storytelling event, we knew we wanted to hear from a first responder. What was it like to be on the front lines fighting this fire? In preparation for this event, 
I spoke with the local nonprofit Mental Health Partners. They told me that creating an opportunity for the community to share stories with each other was a good idea, but to keep in mind that people are still hurting. Anniversaries of tragic events have a tendency to be emotional low points for most folks. And that this was especially true for first responders. We were mindful of mental health partners' advice when we reached out to Mountain View Fire Rescue, the main department in charge of battling the fire that day. That's how we met Division Fire Chief Paul Johnson. As a first responder, he had to look at this overwhelming situation and calmly find solutions. Paul had a whole day's worth of stories he could have told. So he decided to focus his story on how that day started for him. Good evening. Uh, my name is Paul Johnson. I'm a division chief of EMS uh, for Mountain View Fire, and I was one of the first responders on that day. There I am at work. It's December 30th. I've been out the whole Christmas vacation. And this was the one day that I decided to go to work, thinking it'll be nice and quiet. I'd get some work done. And I'm turning on the radio, and I'm kind of listening, and I hear uh, units being dispatched. A little bit later, I hear the fire start down off of uh, Highway 93. That's in our district. And almost immediately, you start to hear radio traffic that just kind of makes your hair stand up on the back of your neck. And so I get my truck and I start driving. I'll never forget making that turn uh, off of 95th onto Dillon. And, you know, I could see the smoke, but when I made that turn and now all of a sudden I'm driving straight at it, I mean, that smoke cloud was huge and it was black. Black's not a great smoke color you want to see. And I pulled up to that Sagamore neighborhood, and it was on fire. I can't see anything. And I open the window. I can hear the fire, and I can feel the fire. And I'm thinking, I am in a dangerous spot. So I turn around, and I start driving out. I had to inch my way out. Couldn't see the front of my car. All I could think was I need to get up high so I can see where the fire's at. I need to get a better picture of what's going on. And I drive up onto the ridge, and I start, you know, looking back down into, into original town Superior, and I can't see any fire, which I'm thinking to myself, like, this is pretty incredible. Like, there's so much fire there, and I can't see it. Just smoke and ash and soot and wind. And I've never experienced anything like that in my life. So I start, you know, working the fire, and we're, we're doing everything we can. I become Division Zulu which is the south side of the fire. So now I'm responsible for the whole southern edge, and, and I'm busy and working on the fire, and I get this phone call. And I hear, hey, a Vista hospital says they need to evacuate. And I'm like, man, no way. Like, now, in the midst of this fire, like, ah, that's, that's a bad idea. Like, that is an easily defendable building. Like, I can send some resources over there, and, and, and we can handle this. So I hang up. Five minutes later, phone rings again. Hey, Chris is at a Vista. He says they need to evacuate. They're being impacted by smoke so heavily, smoke and debris and flame, you know, that they need to evacuate. And I have this adage that I've always lived by. And I got it out of a leadership book. And it's always trust the person on the ground, right? So my instinct was no. But I'm thinking in my head, man, I know Chris. 
And if he's there and he's saying they need to evacuate, like we need to evacuate. So I'm like, okay, I guess we're evacuating an entire hospital in the middle of the biggest fire that I've ever been involved in. And, and it's a mind switch. And so I, you know, I'm like, like, holy cow, like we're going to need a lot of resources. So I call my friend, Mark, who's a division chief of EMS like me with a neighboring agency. And I say, Hey Mark, I really need some help. And he's like, Oh, I'm in like, where do you want me? And I said, I need you to go to a Vista and I need you to manage the evacuation. And so Mark goes over there and he starts in on the evacuation there's so much soot and smoke and ash getting inside that hospital. And, you know, I'm checking in with him and I'm saying, Mark, what's going on? And he's like, we're evacuating the neonatal ICU, the little tiny babies. And he's like, and I'm, and I'm setting up resources to protect the hospital in case, you know, a window gets broken out or, I mean, I, things I didn't think about at the time, but you got a whole hospital full of oxygen, right? Highly flammable. One broken window, you know, and I'm like, Ugh. And they're seeing flames out of the ICU window. Everything's starting to catch on fire around. And I don't know if you know Avista, but there's only one way in and one way out. And so our next problem becomes how do we protect all of these ambulances that we've called? How do we protect the access and egress? So that becomes an immediate firefighting priority for us. After about two hours, we managed to get everybody out of there. And I walked through with uh, Chris, the emergency manager guy, and we were the last ones out of the hospital. Um, closed down the hospital. We evacuated roughly 51 people. We sent 21 home in their own cars. We evacuated about 30 people uh, via ambulance, including the NICU and the ICU. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. An excerpt from the latest episode of My Story So Far, CPR's podcast that shares the personal experiences of Coloradans in their own words with host Luis Antonio Perez. Hear the complete episode wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. You're with CPR News and KRCC.